welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for taking some time today. My name is Jeff Shields. I'm a client advisor in our North America institutional business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. On the phone with me today, I'm really pleased to introduce my colleague, Jing Ulrich, who is the Vice Chairman of Global Banking in Asia-Pacific here at J.P. Morgan Chase. Jing, which I just learned was the first mainland China undergraduate student at Harvard University, has a really unique perspective to share with all of you today. Over the last 25, 30 years, she has worked tirelessly across both the East and the West, connecting investment capital, but also sitting in positions on boards, et cetera, where she just really brings a global perspective to investors looking at the Chinese market opportunity. We're going to discuss the Chinese economy, the capital markets, and then Jing's going to share some of her current investment themes and also some of her longer-term thoughts as we get past COVID-19. So, Jing, would you start us off with some of your opening remarks? And thanks so much, Jing, for joining us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Jeff, thank you very much for your kind introduction, and thank you all very much for spending the time with us. I'm planning to give everyone an overview on China in a global context. So now let me begin with the overall outlook for the Chinese and global economy, and then we'll touch on financial markets. Our macroeconomic outlook this year basically has three key points. Number one, the COVID-19 shock is unprecedented, and first half 2020 global GDP will collapse more sharply than any time since World War II. And second, unprecedented policy support from around the world is setting the stage for a second half economic rebound. And this rebound will be far stronger compared to past cycles. And third, the rebound is going to continue into next year. However, it is going to be partial and leave economic activity still depressed by the end of 2021. Now, China seems to be leading the path out of this dark hole. With regard to China, we're expecting economic output and production to recover first, followed by personal consumption and the services industry. And finally, the third sector to recover will be exports, given a rather grim economic picture globally. So government efforts from around the world to contain both the virus and financial stress are proving to be quite successful. So in response, we have seen corporate and sovereign credit spreads, as well as global equity markets rebound quite sharply. Looking at China specifically, in the first quarter 2020, GDP contracted by a record 6.8% year over year. That basically is a contraction of 35% quarter on quarter. For the full year 2020, we are expecting GDP growth for China to be around 1.3%. Now, for the world economy, we're expecting this year to contract by 4.8%. So what does that mean? That basically means global GDP will contract by about 9 trillion U.S. dollars over 2020 to 2021. That's basically the size of the Japanese and German economies combined. So it's really quite an astounding figure. The world is losing the equivalent of Japan and Germany combined to COVID-19. For Asia as a whole, you know, 17 economies or so, GDP growth in 2020 will be zero. 
Now, it's important to keep in mind, China is 13 trillion U.S. dollars in terms of the size of the GDP. It is 50% of Asia-Pacific GDP. So if you look around Japan, Korea, India, Australia, ASEAN 10 in Southeast Asia, all these economies added together in Asia-Pacific add up to China. So China represents 50% of Asia-Pacific GDP and 18% of global GDP. For the rest of this year, I think China is going to be one of the very few large economies in the world to actually show positive growth. Looking at some of the interesting stories and anecdotes from China these days, as some of the economic numbers are backward-looking, we're literally tracking China's recovery in May and going forward, day by day, week by week, using some high-frequency data. For example, we're looking at things like air pollution index, which is now back up to historical levels. That basically indicates industrial activity is going back to normal. April export numbers from China actually came in stronger than expected, actually rose by 3.1% month on month. That's partly due to notable pickup from exports in medical equipment. In terms of housing sales, over the last few weeks, we've seen a pretty sharp recovery. Back in February, housing sales were down by 95%. But now, housing sales literally rebounded in line with the historical average. Coal consumption of the six major power generators actually jumped in the month of May, currently 1.5% above historical average. Coal consumption is important because coal is the main source of fuel and electricity generation in China. And then on the transportation side, we look at traffic delay index for the top 100 cities in China. That is pretty much returned to historical levels. A lot of traffic is back on the street, especially personal cars, because people are reluctant to take public transportation to and from work. So traffic jams are literally back on the streets of the major cities in China. On the consumption side, we're looking at retail sales of passenger vehicles. That's still recovering. It's about 8% below the long-term average, and these numbers vary week to week. And finally, on the consumption side, it's quite interesting to look at the May Golden Week holiday, which happened between May 1st and May 6th. So it was a six-day holiday. You can see, actually, during the May Day holiday, people were still relatively cautious. We're seeing tourism revenue drop by about 53% year over year compared to the last year May Day holiday. And you can see people are still quite reluctant to go out shopping, The tourist sites were largely open, but capacity were kept at about one-third of normal levels to avoid overcrowding. So the economic recovery in China is definitely continuing, and I would say in some areas you're seeing rebounding numbers quite strongly. In other areas, the numbers remain quite tepid. In terms of policy response, the Chinese government on the fiscal side The government is basically increasing budgetary fiscal deficit target to about 3.2% of GDP. They're also increasing special local government bond quota to support investments in infrastructure, especially new infrastructure such as 5G, the digital economy, and public health. On the monetary policy front, we are expecting another rate cut in the second quarter also another reserve requirement ratio cut in mid-2020. 
Here, I want to say that Washington actually has been much more aggressive compared to Beijing in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus. In fact, Washington has been emulating what Beijing did back in 2009 when China unleashed the 4 trillion yuan economic stimulus program, which really helped lift the world out of the abyss during the great financial crisis. But this time around, Beijing stimulus programs are much more conservative compared to what the U.S. has done so far. And on the exchange rate policy front, we are actually expecting the Chinese yuan to be relatively stable. And this is because economic rebound from the second quarter onwards is going to provide supportive growth fundamentals for the Chinese currency. Also, the Chinese current account surplus is going to widen in 2020 because lower oil prices will help reduce China's oil import bill. China is the single largest oil importer in the world, so lower oil prices benefit China. And secondly, travel restrictions could significantly reduce China's tourism service deficit. So in the past, as you know, China used to have 150 million people travel overseas every single year. A lot of the Chinese tourists would spend a huge amount of money overseas, helping support overseas economies. But this time around, in 2020, because of border restrictions, Chinese travelers are not going to travel far and wide beyond China's borders. So this is going to help reduce China's tourism service deficit, helping support the Chinese yuan. Also, you have a pretty wide interest rate differential between China and the U.S. because of the more aggressive rate cuts by the Federal Reserve compared to the Chinese central bank. So for the rest of this year, we expect the Chinese currency to be relatively stable against the U.S. dollar. And this is important for institutional investors in the U.S. as you're planning perhaps to invest in Chinese equities or Chinese bonds. You need to pay attention to the exchange rate dynamics between the Chinese currency versus the U.S. dollar. Now, let me also share with you some interesting anecdotes on the consumption side. A lot of investors from around the world are asking just how fast consumption is recovering in China. Consumers are actually coming back. In the recent days, our analysts in China have visited Shanghai and also a third-tier city called Taizhou to get some on-the-ground information on how fast consumption is coming back. So, for example, traffic in the Shanghai high-speed railway station is about 30 to 40 percent lower compared to previous weekends or long holidays. Local government and large retailers have issued consumption coupons to stimulate consumption, and that seems to be working. So restaurants in the bigger cities, such as Shanghai, are about 60 to 70 percent occupied on average. The ones providing unique menus and experiences are actually fully booked. Many of the brands in China, from milk to beer, from sneakers to rice cookers, are offering attractive discounts to de-stock their channel inventory. Speaking of global luxury goods, sales performance is divided depending on the category, positioning, and pricing. I'm hearing from some of the luxury goods companies in the last few days during the May Day holiday, they actually had some really great sales numbers, actually historical highs on certain days. I'm calling this phenomenon retail revenge because some consumers have been cooped up inside their homes for a number of months. They're actually out there shopping. Also, Disneyland opened in Shanghai on May 11th to one-third of the usual capacity. Actually, the tickets for Disneyland were sold out within the first two minutes. 
So in general, we're quite excited about China's pent-up demand recovery, as evidenced by consumer company business updates, industry data, and also our own channel checks. On the flip side, however, the outbreak has resulted in global travel and logistics bans, business disruption, and also tension between China and some of the other countries around the world. So this may trigger further economic challenges leading to rising concerns about the macroeconomy, perhaps unemployment, as well as domestic consumption recovery. Now, let me just wrap up the China situation with a couple of final comments. So we are expecting China's sequential V-shaped recovery to continue in the second quarter and the third quarter. In the second quarter, we're forecasting the economy to grow 1% year over year. And that basically represents a quarter-on-quarter growth of 44%. So you have first the normalization in economic activity in China. That is going to continue with COVID-19 basically under control in the country. And number two, investments are really picking up, especially infrastructure-related investments and real estate investments. And those investments are going to accelerate in the second quarter, benefiting from China's policy support. Now, let me speak about financial markets before we wrap up. So on financial markets, risky assets generally rallied over the past six weeks, and they're at various stages of recovery with commodities lagging, equities retracing to half of their plunge, and investment-grade credit healing the farthest. So at JP Morgan, we are retaining our pro-risk allocation, given the improving virus dynamics and also extraordinary monitoring fiscal support from the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, as well as rather defensive investor positioning. In terms of equities, which rallied very strongly in late March and April, the pace of the gains has moderated over the past couple of weeks, but we remain positive on equities for the rest of the year. We're actually seeing a return to previous highs by first half of 2021. That's because virus dynamics seems to be improving. The impact of the Fed's actions on rates and credit spreads more than offset the impact of temporary hit to corporate earnings. So we maintain a moderate equity overweight on the expectation that equities should continue to rebound ahead of a rebound in macroeconomic activity. So our bullish stance on equities basically is underpinned by the following factors. Number one is massive liquidity injection. Number two, zero cash rates and low bond yields. Number three, equity underweight positions among global investors. Number four, the relaxation of lockdowns and signs of bottoming out in economic activity. And finally, the healing of our credit markets. And in terms of bonds, we maintain a underweight position in government bonds as we're expecting yields to move higher in the coming months. And also the Federal Reserve will be pulling back its treasury purchases. In terms of the credit markets, last month we added a credit overweight position focusing on high-grade bonds given the central bank backstops. With the Federal Reserve beginning to purchase high-grade credit via ETFs, we're maintaining an overweight credit position to expect basically further spread tightening, even though we expect the pace of tightening to moderate going forward. 
So that's a quick wrap-up on our financial markets. So, Jeff, at this point, I've spoken long enough, so thank you very yeah, much great, for your great. time. I'm happy to answer questions. Thanks so much, Jing. Yeah, I really appreciate your overview and your insights. You know, one of the things you speak to so many different investors and companies globally is they, you know, kind of seek your advice from a strategy standpoint. Do you hear one or two, maybe three additional themes that are coming from them that would be helpful to other investors to be thinking about specific to China? Sure. Absolutely. One of the key questions I often get asked by global institutions is whether China can be used as a template for the rest of the world in terms of its combat against the coronavirus. So here I want to say that China is very different in terms of culture, in terms of economic structure compared to the U.S., for example. Culturally, in Asia, especially in China, you have a large degree of compliance and conformity. Also, there is a sense that individuals should sacrifice their personal freedom for the collective good of society. So as soon as the lockdown was instituted in China, in the city of Wuhan, in the province of Hubei, everyone complied. And China, at one point, basically locked down the entire country in February and also in the first half of March. So there's a great sense of personal sacrifice. And people did that without complaint. And people really strictly abided by all the rules and regulations, such as mask wearing, such as personal distancing. Now, in the U.S., I think the culture is very different. People value so much individual's freedom. And the lockdowns, I think, in the U.S. are not nearly as strict compared to the lockdowns in China. That's perhaps why it's taking much longer for the U.S. to control the spread of the virus. The second question that I often hear from investors is whether China offers any diversification benefits for global institutions. If you look at financial market trends in the last several months, obviously the U.S. market rebounded very sharply. So far, the Nasdaq is actually up 2% year-to-date, and the S&P is down about 9%. For the Chinese market, the recovery has not been nearly as strong but also keeping in mind the plunge earlier in February and March was also not quite as sharp. So year-to-date, the Shanghai Composite Index is down by about 5%. The Shenzhen Composite Index is up by about 5%. China seems to be in a world of its own. The correlation of the Chinese equity market is not very high compared to global markets. So I would say in the medium to long term, global institutions should consider adding some exposure to China as over time, China should offer diversification benefits. Well, thanks for those thoughts. And a lot of the callers on today's call would be long-term investors with long time horizons. And one of the questions that we've been seeing among our client base is asking who might be the secular winners and losers coming out of this crisis in China and how best to kind of think about that for their portfolios. Sure. Jeff, we're always looking at the secular winners, losers, or you could call them the victors or the victims. Clearly, there is going to be greater demand for online, virtual, digital services and infrastructure. So this includes things like telemedicine, online education. So I think there will be permanent increases in demand for health services as well, therapeutics, serology tests vaccines, 
Also, there will be permanent increases in demand for digital interactions, entertainment, and gaming. So not surprisingly, you're seeing obviously the large stocks in the digital sector in the U.S. leading the market performance. It's the same in China. And also, we are going to see some accelerated and probably permanent shift in demand for online retail, you know, going from brick and mortar to e-commerce. But on the flip side, there will be some long-term losers, I would say, from COVID-19. So long-term border restrictions will be limiting international air travel until such a time of vaccine is widely available. There will be permanent increases in the share of workforce working from home. So perhaps there'll be less demand for commercial real estate. There will be permanent decrease in international air travel for business and leisure and also sea travel for leisure. So therefore, this doesn't bode very well for global oil demand. As you know, road transportation is 50% of oil demand and aviation is 8% of global oil demand. So as people travel less by air, by cruise, or just they drive less as they're working from home, that's going to perhaps slow the demand recovery for oil. Now, in general, the secular winners I identified, tech, communication, and healthcare, comprise a larger share of the U.S. market is around 52%. For the European region, that's 22%. For Japan, it's 33%. So I think this bodes very well for the U.S. market as the secular winners comprise a much larger share of the U.S. market compared to other regions. And not surprisingly, you're seeing the top technology companies leading the recovery. In fact, the top five stocks, you know who they are. They are bigger than the bottom 350 stocks in the S&P 500. Well, thanks. And a kind of a follow-up question around China is that we often are told by portfolio managers and research analysts that a lot of the opportunity in China centers around consumer consumption. And we often hear the term, this company is just like X, right? Just some a Western brand that we're familiar with. Is this the primary or dominant theme? Do you expect it to continue in the future? Or are there new themes on the horizon that investors should be considering? Well, the personal consumption story in China is very strong. Compared to the U.S., where personal consumption accounts for 70% of GDP, in China, this ratio is still below 40%. So the potential for increase in personal consumption as a share of GDP in China is tremendous. Now, because Chinese people behave a bit differently compared to Americans, number one, the Chinese consumers save a lot. They save 40% of their income, while in the U.S., people's savings rates are much lower. So from a Chinese government standpoint, they need to stimulate personal consumption for that to become really the number one driver for China's GDP. Going forward, as the global environment remains unstable, they cannot really count on exports to drive GDP growth anymore. So I would say in the coming few years, the Chinese leadership will focus their attention on domestic consumption. One of the reasons why Chinese citizens save so much is because the nature of the savings is precautionary. They are worried about retirement. They're worried about the day they may get sick because the social safety net is not yet in place. So I think in the wake of the pandemic, the Chinese leadership will put a lot more emphasis on building up the social infrastructure. 
such as retirement provisions, pension services, and also healthcare, so that people can reduce their precautionary savings and they would feel much more confident saving less and spending more. Yeah, interesting. So I guess the next question we often get from investors as we talk about themes and correlations, diversification benefits, is how important are the Chinese equity and fixed income markets and how do you counsel clients on their viability? I mean, it just seems to all of us that healthy markets would result in a reflection of a strong economy, good governance, etc. In your conversations, as investors continue to build out Chinese equity allocations, how are you thinking about that in talking to them? Yes, Jeff, we spoke a little bit about Chinese equity markets earlier already, and also mm-hmm. I'm happy to speak about the bond market as well. So China, as I said before, is 18% of global GDP. But in terms of China's share in global indices, it's still very, very small. In fact, it's minuscule. Certainly cannot compare to China's importance in terms of its economic size and contribution to global GDP. So over time, in the coming five years, 10 years, I would imagine China's index weighting will only go up. So China equities now are included in the major benchmarks. But the onshore A-share market, there are thousands of stocks listed in in China. The inclusion is only partial. So if the Chinese A-share market get included in the MSCI global indices, that would trigger a lot more passive inflows. And it could amount to some 450 billion U.S. dollars of inflows if 100% of the China A-shares are included. And China's entry confirms emerging Asia's rise in the emerging market asset class. And also in terms of the debt market, it's huge. The Chinese debt market is around 13 trillion U.S. dollars. It's second only to the U.S. in terms of the size. Overseas investors currently hold a very modest amount of onshore Chinese equities and bonds. The Chinese bond market is very much underowned by global institutions. I think with only 2.5% of onshore bonds being held by global institutions, I think that amount is around 290 billion US dollars. In terms of the emerging market debt universe, obviously including China, the size is around $22 trillion. And China is a larger chunk of that, as I mentioned, 13 trillion US dollars. And in the recent weeks during the pandemic, the Asian credit markets actually has performed in a resilient manner versus developed markets due to fundamental and technical reasons. I think this reflects the fact that China is further ahead in overcoming COVID-19. And China credit basically dominates the Asia credit market, representing roughly 52% of market share. And the Chinese credit market really benefited from early signs that China has contained COVID-19 and its economy is gradually recovering. Also, China is a net commodity importer, as we talked about oil a bit earlier. So benefits is a beneficiary of lower energy prices. China's oil and gas sector is largely made up of state-owned enterprises with close links to China as a sovereign country. So therefore, it really insulates the final credit rating risk from pressure on its standalone financials. 
So I think over time, global investors will take a closer look at the Chinese equity and bond markets as most of the investors we talk to are still very much underweight, both equities and bonds in China. So the opportunity for them to increase their weightings is tremendous. You know, interesting because oftentimes, you know, after we're done talking to clients about China, one of the questions that comes up, the risk that comes up, is government, household, and corporate debt levels are often kind of just referenced as a potential risk to Chinese investments. I mean, it doesn't appear that it's really hampered the government's response to COVID-19, but ultimately, what does the rise of debt, not only in China, but globally mean for investors? Well, the rise of debt is a major concern in the years to come because of the extraordinary fiscal stimulus that we have seen from around the world. I mean, in the U.S., you are seeing the Treasury, I think, issuing over $3 trillion U.S. dollars of government securities in the coming quarter. And that's a huge amount of securities for the market to digest. So obviously, debt levels are going up, and that perhaps means taxes will go up for corporates and individuals in the U.S. and perhaps elsewhere. In China, the situation is a little bit different because if you look at China's debt profile, before the pandemic outbreak, total debt level to GDP was already very high, around 270%. So that includes government debt, household, and corporate debt. So in China, the nature of the debt and the profile of debt is different from the U.S. For example, in China, the central government has a very healthy balance sheet. Its debt levels are very low, perhaps 40% of GDP. The U.S. federal debt is rising by the day, as we know. In China, household debt levels are very low because, as we mentioned earlier, Chinese households are big savers. Here in the U.S., you do have a lot of household debt, both in the form of mortgages, tuition, well as a credit card debt. So in China, the household debt levels are very low and household balance sheets are very healthy. Corporate debt in China is a major problem, especially among the large industrial companies and state-owned enterprises. I think corporate debt GDP is well over 100%. Here in the U.S., it's different because a lot of the large technology companies have huge amounts of cash on their balance sheet. And also in China, Local governments are heavily in debt. Basically, the provinces and municipalities have incurred a lot of debt for local consumption and local expenditure. Here in the U.S., the states obviously have high debt levels, but they can also finance themselves with municipal bonds. In China, the municipal bond market is not nearly as developed. So I would say at this point for China, the leadership is focusing on rejuvenating the economy. They certainly are increasing debt levels to help fund some of the expenditure. So by year end this year, 2020, we're expecting total debt to GDP to rise from 270% to perhaps close to 300%. Obviously, in the long term, such a high ratio is not sustainable. But keeping in mind, you know, the central government in China really on the other side of the balance sheet have a lot of assets. They own the majority of the state-owned enterprises. They own the land. So there's not a lot of risk for sovereign default or large corporate defaults in China. So the situation, as I compared and contrasted just now, is very different from the situation in the U.S. Okay, great. 
Well, first of all, Jing, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's terrific to get your insights, and I know everyone appreciated them. We hope that today's call was impactful. Thank you so much for the ongoing partnership. If you need additional information about anything that was discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited. 
which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.